That voice thing has got me a little self-conscious now. But I, I did think it was quite important just to say on a, on a more serious note that if the 24th of January is really difficult on your budget, the 24th of March is another option. I'm available and I will graciously receive whatever you give me. It really is a privilege to be here, wonderful to be preaching on the last Sunday of the year and, and also for me to have family from the UK. So I thought I'd really, I'm going to really embarrass them. The, the first thing why I'm going to embarrass them is I'm going to make them stand up. But the second thing is that we actually have a genuine Englishman with us. And like he has silverware free. He has no World Cup with him. So it's really embarrassing. So why don't you stand up? Let's greet them. Come on. Come on, guys. Come on. Come on. And just in case you're worried, the other guy, Jason, is a Welshman, and they've never won anything, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but God is good. Just love that video, just contemplating the year, what God has done to us as a community, and just also knowing a little bit of some of the stories of people's lives and what God has done, and victories and, and challenges, and, and just the faithfulness of God. So it really is good. Um, I'm going to be speaking, continuing on the, the series on the heroes of faith from Hebrews 11. And I, I have one verse that I want to read from Hebrews 11, and um, it's Hebrews 11:11. 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised since she considered him faithful who had promised. And it's when you read that, that, that verse in Hebrews 11 and what it's saying about Genesis 18, about the actual story, it's almost like there's quite a difference. Because I want to go back to, to Genesis 18 and I want to read this. I'm going to read from verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, that's to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, I suppose. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham quickly went into the tent to Sarah, Quick. It's amazing. That's, that, isn't that, that still true today? The husband promises something and the wife's got to fulfill it. You know, <laughs> you know, so he like promises, Guys, relax, I'm going to organize something for you. Runs back to the tent, Sarah, quick, sort this out. I've made a promise. Anyway, sorry, a little side thing there. Quick, three sears of fine flour kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man to prepare it quickly. 
and they took curds and milk. Sorry. And they took curds and milk and the calf that they prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Then he said to them, Where is Sarah your wife? Sorry, then he said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Abraham said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. Abraham, 99, Sarah, 80, 90 years old. And Sarah was listening at the tent behind him. Sorry, I jumped there. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And in that sentence, I think we can, we can miss a lot. But here is a woman in that culture giving your husband a son was, was a very, very important thing. So here is a woman who has lived with, with the, the desire to have a child for probably 40 years, 50 years, and it hasn't happened. She's almost given up. In fact, so that her husband has gone and made a plan, got an Egyptian woman and had a child through him, Ishmael. And so there's a lot of pain in that word, in that, that laughter that Sarah's almost disguising, saying, laughing about it. There's a pain hidden there that she's saying, almost she can't believe for that anymore. She's, that's beyond believing. And the Lord said to Abraham, so obviously her laughter wasn't just to herself, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid and said, But he said, No, you did. So that's the first encounter where Sarah gets promised this child, and it's, it's unbelievable to her. It's like she, she knows that she can't physically have a son anymore, and she laughs about it. She almost scorns all the It brings up, dredges up all the pain in, inside of her. And then a little bit later, in Genesis 21, when Abraham was 100 years old, when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in this old age. For me, the most fascinating thing about that story, when you're comparing the Hebrews 11 account to the, the, the Genesis account, was the, the, almost the different positions that they look at this thing, where the, the Genesis there's a Sarah struggling. She's actually faithless. She gets a promise. She laughs about it. She's like, oh, this is, can't happen. There's pain in it. And then when Hebrews 11 looks back at the story, the story, in a sense, has been changed. Hebrews 11, 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. It's almost like they've rewritten the story. The narrative has been upgraded of what actually happened. And that's an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing, that very often the narrative that we find ourselves in traps us in a certain way, and we need to have 
an upgraded narrative. I was, the other day I got a phone call from a, from a young man and he was in a, he was in a pickle. They, their whole family situation was, was, was in a really tough space. He had a huge conflict with his in-laws and, and they just, they, their family was, was rupturing. And he asked me, he had, I'd done a course with him a while ago, so that's how he knew me, and he said, please, can you help? And so I agreed and we sat down and we, we had a the whole sort of family together and we had this conversation. And in the midst of the conversation, the thing that I realized was that his story was hindering him. You see, in the story that he placed himself in, he was being hurt by his father-in-law. His father-in-law was doing this, his father-in-law was doing that, and he saw himself as the victim, and, there was a, and it, was, it was very real for him. It wasn't like he was just making things up. And so when we left, I met with him individually, and I, and I began to chat to him about the story that he was living in. And we began to help him see things from a different perspective. And literally within a two-hour meeting, he had gone from being a complete victim and struggling and not wanting to change, but being unable to change because of the story that he was in. And suddenly he, he was able to look at things differently and literally it went from night to day because the story changed. And for you and I, that's how powerful the story that we live in is for us. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. You see, the story we live in has a huge impact on our lives. It sets the backdrop for your life. It creates the space that you live in. Do you know that you can only live in the story that you, that you make? And it's kind of like this. It's kind of like the set, if you imagine, of a movie set that, that gives you the space of what can happen. So if you have the story that you are a victim, that people are out to do you in, that's the only space that you can occupy. You can't get out of that space because the story that you're telling yourself and the story that you're living with binds you to that space. Now for Sarah, it changed. And for you and I, sometimes we need to change the story that we're living in, otherwise we will keep living with the same results that we're not happy with. Very often, when we are stuck in life, or when people are stuck in life and their, their life is not working well for them, it's very, very often because we're living in the wrong story. We've got the story wrong, and we need to change the narrative of our lives to fit the new story that God has for us. And so I want to just talk around that and how it happened to Sarah and how we need to be able to change. And for some of us, the thing with story, with our narrative, is that most of us aren't aware of the narrative that we have for our lives because we just inherit it. There's all sorts of ways that we get our story and we're not even aware that we, we suddenly we're living in a story, in a mindset. We, we have a script that we're in and we're not aware of it. And that script can be incredibly liberating or incredibly constraining. And so I just want to share some ways to help us understand how we get narrative in our lives and how we live in, an, live in a story or live in a script. And so that because if you don't know you're living in a space, you can't change it. 
But if you do know something, you suddenly become aware of things, you're able to see things, and then when you can see things and when you know things, then you can change things. But if you don't know what you don't know, you don't know how to change it. Okay. So obviously, the most obvious place that your story starts from is your upbringing, your parents, your family culture that you, you come out of. And the only time, I think I've shared this before, but the only time you realize that family culture is a thing is when you get married. Because suddenly there's a different family culture and the two collide. You know, Janine and I come from two completely different family cultures. I've got to come from a family of five boys and it was kind of like not a lot of money around. So it was first dressed, best dressed. You just grab and you all just had a share because there was never, a, we just had to make a plan. So everybody used everybody else's things. It was just eat, as, eat quickly because if you don't eat quickly, somebody else is going to eat it. So there's never treats in the fridge. You can imagine with five boys, like these are carnivores just going around, you know. And I mean, it got so bad if my mum wanted a treat, she had to like put it away in the cupboard and lock it because it would, we would just like eat it, you know. And Janine comes from a family where everybody respected everybody else's property. So I think if she had a well, let me tell the story. So one day I bought her chocolate. Uh, coming back from work, bought her one, my, myself one. I ate mine. She put hers in the fridge. <laughs> An hour or so later, I opened the fridge door. Ah, there's a chocolate. And I have the chocolate. And she's devastated. How can you give me something and take it away? I said, no, you put it in the fridge. It's for all of us. <laughs> And there was this, it was this clash of cultures. You see, I was living in a story, and she was living in a story, and the only way our marriage was going to be successful if somehow we kind of began to create a new story, a new bubble with, with both of us together. And I'm sure everyone who's married has some notion of that, and sometimes it's not as happy an ending, but thank goodness Janine, man, I managed to change Janine, and she's now w working well, so it's all good. <laughs> I'm also brave in company. I know she's too embarrassed to come up and beat me. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Okay, so the first thing is, it's from our, our upbringing, our, our parents. I think it's from, we get our story as well from key events in our lives, key moments, things, things that happen, good or bad. Uh, I know a story of someone who, at school, they, um, the teacher was asking a question and, and they put their hand up, they, they kind of figured out they had the question, Teacher said, you know, stand up, answer the question. So they answered the question. They were completely wrong, actually on the wrong page, probably on the wrong subject, but anyway. And the teacher humiliated them and said, sit down, you know, you're stupid, you're not going to do it. And they sat down and they made the decision there and then that they would never speak in public again. The problem was there was a call in their life to ministry. So that story there's two stories that will win, either the story of the call on their life or the story of humiliation. And there was a time when those stories were going to clash and one of them had to prevail. So the key moments in our lives uh, carry the stories, create the stories. The failures, this is a big one. If, if I fail in an area, the... the what I normally do, what people normally do, is they will step back from that area and not go there again. 
and normally begin to take a story, I'm a failure, somewhere along the line, something like that. So the, fa the story of the failure becomes to impose on their story and they begin to live with that and it affects what we do. So when we've failed in life, and I've failed many times, I really, really have. I've failed in business, failed in all sorts of areas. And, but the thing is this, either I learn from that and I use that narrative to change who I am or that becomes a constricting story in my life. And the thing is, if we're not aware of that, we go through life having failures, having these key moments, and these stories just link into us and suddenly we are constrained and we're unable to operate. So, the failures, the disappointments. You know, when we go through disappointments, very often what happens is we retract into disbelief or unbelief and we live our lives in unbelief because you know what? It's safer and easier to live in unbelief with no expectation than it is to put expectation and faith out and to be disappointed again, especially in the big things in life. So we have, what happens is the, the, new, the narrative of disappointment tells you to live in your little box and stay there. Because to, to reach out again and to expect again for God to come through or for something good to happen again, sometimes it's too hard. Especially if we've been through big things like divorces or lost children or something else, it's just safer to pull back can't go through that pain again. So the fear of pain or the, or the inability to deal with the pains in our lives causes us, introduces new narrative into our story and holds us back. And on top of this, we have the successes in our lives that, that affect our story. And, and very often, the successes can be as detrimental as the failures. Because who can teach anyone how to... I mean, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. When someone is very successful in an area, you can't tell them anything about that area. Because they know they're successful. They have, that's it. It's like their ears disappear. Successful businessmen, you sit down with a successful businessman and try to say, let's talk about... I want to teach you something about business. It's like, hey, they just don't want to hear because they're successful. Suddenly when failure is knocking at the door, it's like the ears pop out and, hey, I'm available to help me, talk to me, help me process this. So the successes speak into our narrative. Now, so we have all these key moments in life, this history that we live with, the parents that we come from, the family culture, all inadvertently speaking in, unconsciously speaking in and creating the narrative that we live our lives out of. On top of that, we have the accuser just highlighting what he needs to highlight and pulling away what he needs to pull away. So when the good things happen, they're just silenced. And when the bad things happen, he just amplifies that. When hurts are there, he amplifies. When God comes through in an area, he pulls that down and he, he distorts the narrative of our lives that, that, that we begin to live in. He helps distort it. And have you ever noticed that if you've got someone who's like with a with an entitlement narrative and, and they, they're kind of like, well, nothing good's happening for me and I don't deserve this and I deserve that and I didn't get it. And you try and point out to them, say, hey, well, actually some good's happened, this and that. They just can't see it because they're ex they've got this lens that they, they're looking at. They just can't break through. And so, but if we don't know we have that, we get stuck in that. If we're a victim, 
we're stuck in that victim mentality and we can't get out of it. And, and you know, the, it's the worst thing in the world having a victim because there's nothing you can do to help them unless they're prepared to help themselves. So we have the enemy just going at this, trying to shape. So if we unconscious about the story we're living in, we have all these things operating and forming the story. And we're just unaware of it and we think, hey, I'm, I'm just living by faith or I'm just doing my thing. And I think it's, it, it's good for us as believers to begin to look at the story of our lives and the, the stage that we're living on and the set we're living on and saying, what needs to change here? Because on top of that, we filter everything of our story through our theology of God. So when something happens, it gets filtered through what we think God is like. Let me give you an example. Perhaps one of the, um, the most common kind of um, beliefs around Christianity that, that I think is erroneous, or in fact is erroneous, is that Jesus saved me from an angry God. That if it wasn't for Jesus, the Father would have smoked me. And so when you have that locked into your thinking, if you go wrong in any way, you suddenly like, oh. and what we actually believe is that when Jesus came on the cross, he changed the Father. Because God was angry, the Father was angry with us because of our sin, but thank goodness, Jesus came and took up all our sin, and now the Father's happy with us. That's what most of our a big picture theology thinks of. And so we kind of like, we, the problem with that is we've got it back to front. You see, the cross didn't work on the Father. The cross's effect and implication was on us. God so loved the world, does that sound like an angry father? He so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so the work of the cross doesn't change God from being an angry God to a happy God. It changes us from being sinners to saints, from being orphans to sons. And so when we get that theology wrong, when we're living our lives, we filter this thing all the wrong way, and we end up in this, this stage this play, this narrative that we can't get out of and we get stuck and we're trying to have faith and we're trying to pray and we're trying to do this, but the framework, the, the, the way, the space that we allow God to operate in, He can't do what He needs to do. He wants to do something here, but we locked here. No, it's got to happen here. It's got to be here. It's got to do it this way. Got to. And He's waiting to do it here. And so Sarah was able to change her narrative and she got a miracle. And I want to just help us look at our narrative, look at our story, so that God can begin to do things in 2020 for each of us. Is that all right? Cool. You see, Jesus totally understood the power of story. Jesus told stories. He used stories. He gave us a story in the Gospels, because he understood the power of story to shift things. And more importantly, he understood that his story needed to change our story. And the problem with many of us 
is that we want Jesus without relinquishing our story. We want Jesus without letting go of some of the things we want to hold on to. So in John 8, 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in, in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, that, the word abide, the Greek word, really means to stay, to live, to continue, to indwell, to endure, to be present, to remain, to stand. And obviously, we all know the word, the word for, the word is logos, which basically is something said, including a thought, a discourse, a subject, reasoning, motive, a story. So that can be read like this. If you live in my story, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and it will set you free. And for many of us, we want to live in our story, but we try and get hold of Jesus, but we don't have him in truth because we're holding on to our story, and we need his truth is where we need to be living in, and we need to let go some of the things that we hold on to. Peter was a, was a powerful, let me use that, Peter was a powerful example of somebody who was with Jesus, but whose narrative hadn't shifted yet. He chopped off the guy's ear, did this, did that. He was this gruff person. Till it comes to Jesus, addresses him and says, get behind me, Satan. You could see what was operating in that story. And then you read Peter and you read this man and you try and compare that man to Peter in the Gospels. And it's like, this is a completely different person. The story changed. This man allowed, he let go of his story, the sons of thunder, the crazy man, the one who's angry will do anything, and he took a hold of Jesus' story. Same for Paul. For Saul, should I say. Killing Christians, doing his thing, one encounter, the story changes. And, and for many of us as Christians, unfortunately, what has happened is we, the church has preached, you can have Jesus as your friend. And that's all you need. Just need a relationship with him. You can just hold his hand when you need, when you need him, he's there for you. And, and unfortunately, it's a profoundly anemic gospel because what it does, it gives you something of Jesus, but not the full power. You see, we were created to operate in his story fully and completely. When we're in his story, we find joy, we find happiness, we find purpose, we find all these things. Our story is toxic for you. It's toxic. If my story will hurt me, my narrative, what I want for me, will not be good for me. It will do damage to me. What Jesus has for me will be good for me, and it will bring me to the fullness of what I'm meant to be. Let me read this. John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, so if you're in my story, if you're in my story, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In his story, good things happen. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love, just as I've kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. His story is profoundly, beautifully good for you. Megan, his story is good for you. It'll have the best outcome in your life when you live in his story. And the same for me and the same for each of us. And I think that's profoundly what faith is about, is letting go some of what our story is and grabbing on to what his story is for our life. I think that's Christian maturity. Immaturity is wanting Jesus, but holding on to everything else and living in the chaos of that and never finding peace and never finding things going well. So how, how do you know if you're in the wrong story? And can I say this? We can have areas or realms of our life that are in the right story in a powerful narrative, and there can be other realms that aren't. And so it's not a dichotomy. It's just that certain areas we've allowed Jesus to come into and for his story to become our story, or our story to become his story, should I say. And there are other ones that we're just not ready to let go of. And so we live in this dichotomy of sorts sometimes, or sometimes there's many areas that we don't. But. So how do we know? I think perhaps one of the most powerful ways of knowing is when you have to defend your story. When somebody says something that, and it just gets your gut, it just, you flick the switch, you get angry, you get defensive. However, if you're polite and a good Christian, you do a passive-aggressive thing because Christians don't get angry. But you do whatever you do to tell that person, stay away, don't, don't you challenge this thing. Because what that Christian doesn't know, what that person doesn't know, is this thing, my story, is giving me something. It's giving me identity. It's my little idol. And if you mess with this, I've got nothing. And I think when we get defensive of our stories, I think we know we're probably in the wrong story. You see, it was when Jesus, when our story is Jesus's, I don't have to defend Jesus. He's, he's kind of okay with doing himself. I don't have to feel like I've got to get up there and do this thing. I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with you disagreeing. I don't have to protect this. And so one of, the, one of the, the, the key ways, if you're super defensive on your story, you have a, something, when somebody confronts you, or hey, Drew, I just want to talk to you about this. You, you, you don't understand. That, 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 that. Hey, Drew. That. Okay, well, if you've got areas in your life that people can't speak into, that area is probably your story and not Jesus' story. And that is the probable area that's causing you trouble where you are right now. Because if it was Jesus' story, you'd be open. And it, listen, it's not fun being told that you're wrong sometimes. It's not fun having people speaking into your life and realizing, oops, I need a change. But I promise you, the pain of being wrong and changing is far less than the pain of thinking you're right and not changing and holding on to something. So the other way that we know our story is we're probably living the wrong story 
is when we don't let people close to us. We don't let people in because we're protecting. If you struggle to have friends speaking into your life, it's probably because you're in the wrong story and you might even not know it. And the thing is this, the beautiful thing is this, that Jesus always has the right story waiting for us the moment we want it. He can come in where you are and begin to set you in the right path and shift where you're at. I think another sign that your, your story is wrong is if they're unhelpful patterns. Continual conflict. Relationships, if you see patterns in your relationships. Jesus' story is always better for you than your story. Because his story is from the designer who created you and knows how you're meant to operate. Your story is from this mixed mash of experience and brokenness and hurt and protection and bigotry and racism and this and that and this and that and failed relationships. Yet somehow we want to hold on to ours thinking Jesus is, is too scary. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to challenge us. I'd like to invite us to start a journey where we look at our story, because I don't think it's something you can change in a moment. I think most of us, Jesus can change in a moment, but I think for us, we need, to, we need to build the faith and the courage to begin to let go and allow God to do. And so I want to challenge us. My challenge to us as a community for, for, for 2020 Let's begin to allow Holy Spirit to begin to speak to us and begin to change us. You know, me saying, well, that's, that's just who I am, is not a defense. Because really what I need to do is, what's Jesus in me, not this is just who I am. And so that we can begin to change, and the more that we can change, because at the end of the day, the goal is this. Romans 8, 28. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the end game for you and I. Look like Jesus. He wants you to be like him. And he's given you everything you need for that to happen given you his Holy Spirit, which will, if you allow him, you will look different in one month, in three months, in six months, in 12 months. You will be a different person. I will be a different person if I allow him. Can I pray? Father, I thank you that because you loved, loved us so much that you sent Jesus. 
I thank you that, Jesus, you gave us Holy Spirit, and that there are, we have everything that we need to be transformed into your likeness. And I pray that this year, 2020, this next year, 2020, would be a year where the things that have tripped us up, the areas that we've got stuck in, that that would begin to change, that we would be a people that look more like you, that change to be more like you, that the patterns of the past would begin to be broken because we're allowing you, Jesus, to come and rewrite our narrative. And so, Father, I pray that every person here, that in this next year, they would be on the right stage, in the right set, in the right character, living the right life that you've called them to live, in the right space. And Father, everything that hinders, I speak against in the name and the authority of Jesus, and I declare that because of you, Jesus, we have victory. Amen. Thank you.